And in John chapter 9, we are going to look at the sixth hand-selected sign by the Apostle John, the whole reason he wrote his book. If you recall, if you want to, you can hold your finger in nine. I'll just read this to you. But this is really the theme verse of the Gospel of John. It's John 20, verses 30 through 31. It says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these what? These signs are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so we are introduced to the sixth hand-selected sign here in chapter 9. We'll get to the seventh one in chapter 11. Those are, that's really the signs that he selected. Of course, there's an eighth one. Anyone want to take a guess what that is? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that comes later though. So he's going to get through seven through chapter 11. And as we pick up this morning, just to set the stage, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. It's just the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, we've been, we've slowed down through chapter eight, but only a day has passed since the events of chapter seven toward the end of chapter seven. And if you weren't here last week, or you, you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we came out of an absolute mic drop moment last week in John chapter eight. It was, it's awesome. I would love to reteach that again because it's just so much fun. But Jesus basically said in verse 58 of John chapter eight, before Abraham was, I am. Verse 59, they took up stones to throw at him. But then Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. And this is exactly where we pick up the story this morning. In fact, as Jesus is, is walking through these men who wanted to stone him, you know, you would think that Jesus would want to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. And it's like, man, these dudes were about to stone me. Yeah, I snuck through there, but I better get out of here. Jesus doesn't do that. He, he basically stops on his way out of that group, sees a blind man and stops and engages with this man's life. Just an, just an incredible story. Now, one of the things that's really neat about this particular story is the fact that the Old Testament specifically predicted that the Messiah would open blind eyes. We see this a, a lot of places. Let me just bring up a couple. Isaiah 42, 1 and 7. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, speaking of the Messiah, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And if you jump down to verse 7, it says that he would open blind eyes. We also learned from the Old Testament that giving sight to the blind was a was something, a miracle that was directly associated with God himself. Psalm 146, 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. One of the things that we have been looking at with Jesus is there were only really two options for the Jewish mind to reconcile what appeared to be a miracle, okay? One was that he was, he was doing these miracles. He was sourced from a divine source. The other option was he was sourced from a demonic source. And Jesus's detractors always went with the latter. They said, nah, he's, he's got a demon. And we saw that in John 8. They, they committed that unpardonable sin over and over and over again. And what Jesus is going to do in John chapter 9, and I believe this, there's a reason for this, he is going to do an undeniable divine miracle. Undeniable. They can't deny it. The reason for that is Jesus has healed many blind people by this time in his ministry. His enemies have heard of him healing blind people. In fact, we'll, we'll go through a list of the people that he's healed blind. This is the first time in recorded human history and never been done since that Jesus heals a man who was born blind. See, that's different. That can only be 
divine. So Jesus, again, what is he doing? He's going to do a miracle again. Why? Because he also, like John's gospel, the reason John recorded his gospel, Jesus is also trying to persuade and convince people to trust in him. And he's going to do a miracle of all miracles. In fact, it's, as we look at his miracles, it's hard to like a miracle's a miracle, right? I mean, you're going to say, well, this is a greater miracle. This is a lesser miracle. I mean, give me a, the fact that you say miracle means it's great, but it is interesting that it does seem as we get further in Jesus's life, that his miracles start to really intensify and they start to trump one another. And this is a miracle that's never been done in history. What's Jesus's next miracle? What is the, the grand finale of the miracles in chapter 11? He's going to raise a man from the dead. And that's also going to be an undeniable divine miracle because he's going to wait four days before he does it. They can't just say, oh yeah, he just you know, pushed on his chest and woke him up. Like, you know, they slapped the, they slapped the electrodes on him and shocked his heart back. In the, I mean, they're not going to be able to say that because they had already put him in the grave. And Jesus is going to say, remove the stone and, and come on out, Lazarus. And he's going to come out. So he's kind of ups the ante. And so this morning, what's interesting about this though, and let me just set the stage. It's an undeniable divine miracle, but Jesus did on the Sabbath. So you can already know where his enemies are going to go with this. They're going to find a way to reject what he did based on the day that he did this miracle. All right, so let's jump in chapter nine and verse one. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? We don't have a lot of context clue other than we're going to make some observation with some wording uses as Jesus passed by. Now, this could possibly be when Jesus, right after Jesus passed through the crowd, which is kind of the view I take, or it could be John inserting another story within this time frame that he's in Jerusalem. We, we can't really make the argument strong from the text, but I do think that there's a possible connection between the last phrase in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 59, he passed by, and then chapter 9, 1, as Jesus passed by. It's the same exact word used there. If John is trying to make a connection to this event in, in chapter 8, which I think he is, this is incredible. Again, as I said, if someone's trying to kill me, if I can get away from them, I'm, I'm hitting the accelerator and I'm out of town, right? I mean, I'm gone. Jesus is like, hey, uh, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee, you know, like real quick. Let's, let's slow this thing down. And he's going to engage this, this blind man. It's so very intense time. And what Jesus is going to do here, and we're going to see it here at the beginning of chapter 9, we're going to see it as we go through. He's, he's taking this opportunity not only to disciple his disciples, but he's going to do this undeniable divine miracle, which is actually on his appointment book. It's, it's on his divine schedule that he does this for this man. And we'll kind of seal, uh, see this as we go. And I love the fact, again, if we can't bring this out enough, Jesus is relentless and passionate about his desire to communicate. Even with people that want to kill him, he wants them to see that he's the Messiah. He wants them to be convinced and persuaded themselves. He sees this man, and, and we get this key thing that he was born blind. The reason Jesus saw him was most likely due to the fact because blind people oftentimes spent time at the temple begging. That was how they lived. To be handicapped, physically handicapped in this culture was almost a death sentence. You were a burden on your family. And oftentimes the family would say, well, you got to earn your keep. So get down to the temple and beg and, and depend on the generosity of others. And so oftentimes uh, Jesus, even going to the temple from the time he was 12 years old, every year, even everybody coming out of the time, they probably started to recognize the beggars. 
it was the same people all the time, okay? And so this man was recognizable. We know that he was begging. If you see that down in verse eight, this is how it kind of came out, that this is the one who sat and begged. But being born blind from birth was a key detail that would be very important later in the study. Because as we go down the passage, it's going to be this point that's brought out that, that requires that this is a divine miracle. And this is what the, the leaders are going to have so much heartache about is because they know they can't deny that this man was healed divinely, not through the power of Satan. The disciples look at this man. They're on their way out of this, you know, this potential stoning. They see this man. They've probably seen him, you know, a hundred times going in and out of the temple. And they just, they're trying to learn from Jesus. You know, he's a rabbi. There's this, uh, this thought amongst Jewish leaders that every suffering, every sickness, every illness had some direct connection to a personal sin. We do the same thing in our day, by the way, lest we point fingers at the religious leaders. You know, in fact, I was, I was even joking. I, was, I, was, uh, I had an opportunity to golf with Clay and Matt Brown uh, a few months ago, and, and I don't get to golf that much. I enjoy golf, but I don't get to golf that much. But I actually hit a couple good shots that day. And they were like, man, you must be living right, preacher, you know, kind of like joking around. I mean, they didn't mean anything by it. But, you know, we kind of carry that mindset. Like, if good things happen to you, it's because you're living right. And if bad things happen to you, it's because you're living wrong. And it's so funny, you know, like when good things happen to you, you can eat all the Big Macs you want and you never think eating a Big Mac's like a problem. But the second something bad happens, oh, it's that Big Mac I ate, you know, it's that, it's that extra helping of, you know, ice cream I had, man, it's, it's catching up. And we, we have this tendency to connect bad things or suffering to personal sin or mistakes or whatever, whatever you might say. This is the question. They ask him, very commonly held by the Jewish religious leaders uh, in Jesus' day. In fact, you jump down again, verse 34, they're going to tell the man born blind, uh, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? See, the assumption was because you were born blind, you sinned or your parents sinned. Either way, you were born in sin. That was the attitude of these men. And it comes out of a misapplication of this verse. And you've probably heard a misapplication of this verse in our day as well, Exodus 25, which says, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This was a national promise to Israel that if they rejected the Lord, that their children would suffer. And that came through exile and discipline of the nation. This is not talking about personal sin. This is not saying your great granddaddy killed someone and all everything bad that happens in my life is because of my great, great granddaddy. No, there's lots of reasons bad things happen in our life. One, we live in a sin infested world that's dying and decaying. So that's part of the reason. Part of it, let's not kid ourselves. We make really bad decisions sometimes. And some of us are a lot better and more consistent at making bad decisions than others. And so we tend to have more bad things happen to us when that happens, right? So we, when you sow, you reap. So there, there's lots of principles at play here. It's not, as, it's not as black and white as, oh, he's blind, either he's sinned or his parents sinned. Those are the only two options. And this is what Jesus is going to take a time to explain. By the way, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, Jews actually, some of the Jews in this day actually believed in prenatal sins, in other words, when you were in the womb, if you kicked or punched your mom too hard, they would consider that a sin. And, and so the, the mindset is, 
Well, if it wasn't the parents' sin, then this baby must have been just beating the tar out of its mom's uterus, you know, and that's why he came out blind. So they would tie these direct things, these direct results to, to a sin. In fact, one popular rabbi was quoted as saying, no death without sin, that is true, but then he would say, no suffering without iniquity. In other words, if you're suffering, it's because of something you did wrong, and that was the direct connection. And so this view was false because it taught that every bad effect on someone's life had a direct and identifiable cause. This is why Jesus earlier uh, in John 5, 14, this was another unique situation. Remember, he healed that man at the pool of Bethesda, but this is what he says to this man. He says, he found him in the temple. He said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. See, that was a situation. That man was healed and he was in the state that he was in because of personal sin. That's what we kind of see from that passage, but not this man here. In fact, Jesus is going to say, there's a totally different reason why this man is blind. Completely, completely off your radar in the simplistic religious view of the day. And it's going to be a very incredible reason as we kind of look at that, because in verse three, he says this, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. There was a greater purpose at stake here. And now, by the way, Jesus isn't contradicting scripture when he says this. He's not saying, oh, this man and his parents have never sinned, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. He's not contradicting this. He's simply answering the disciples' question. It wasn't their sin or his sin that caused his blindness. That wasn't the cause of the blindness at all. In fact, Jesus is going to blow their mind. He's going to say there's an actually an incredibly different reason that he was born blind, that God allowed for this particular reason. And this is something his disciples nor the Jewish religious leaders had ever considered before. And here it is. He says, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, I want you to just think about that for just a second. It's kind of cool, but I can see where the, where the guy might be frustrated too, right? Because his entire existence, this, this man was born at a particular time in history for the sole purpose of proving or showing the works of God in his Messiah. That was part of the purpose of this man's entire life. In fact, it was literally designed to give testimony to God's Messiah. Imagine your whole life, the purpose of your life, that the reason you breathed and woke up every day was to ID Jesus Christ. Part of what you did was to ID Jesus Christ. In fact, can you think of another man on earth at this time? Actually, his life had been taken by this time, whose sole purpose was to to live and to breathe and identify Jesus Christ. We looked at him back at John 1, John the Baptist. That's exactly what he was born to do, was to identify. This man is, is on John the Baptist's team, didn't even know it. He just thought he was blind. He just thought he was going through life ridiculously frustrated. He just thought he had, he had gotten the, the short end of the stick, that he had just drawn the wrong card in life. He just thought, man, someone in my family ain't, wasn't living right. Maybe I kicked my mom too hard. I don't know what's going on, but I definitely got the short end of the stick. Can you imagine the variety of emotions that this man must have felt when, when and if he found out this truth, that the reason he was born blind was to, as verse three says again, um, that the works of God should be revealed in him. He might've been angry. You know what a lifelong struggle again with blindness would have 
entailed for this man. It, has anybody ever uh, walked in the dark? I mean, I, I walk, I get up early in the morning, every, every morning, I, I, I have to say this carefully in context, I beat my wife up every morning, right? But I, I beat her up by, by a couple hours, right? I get up earlier than her is what I mean by that. But we, we've got these blackout shades in our room. And um, man, when I, when, I wake up in the, when I wake up in the morning, like I got to get my head shaking because if I have any cobwebs there, like I'm going down because there's pillows on the floor, there's chairs. And I mean, it, I mean it, and it's all tidied up. I know where everything is, but it's just kind of like if you've ever walked where you can't see, I mean, it's a very disconcerting feeling. The, the ground can be solid where you're stepping, but you're kind of like, I mean, you're just, you're inching along. That's how I feel every morning when I wake up. But this guy was a lifelong struggle. Imagine just going anywhere you needed to go, you would have to be led by the hand. Or you would have to just take your chances. Israel's a very hilly place. You could literally step off a cliff as a blind person to lose your life. You could step off into a stream. You could step off into a water source. So maybe he was angry when he heard about this. Maybe he was frustrated because he missed all these opportunities. He's never seen the temple with his eyes. He's never seen a priest with his eyes. He's never experienced the Feast of Tabernacles. never been able to watch the water ceremony we looked at in chapter seven. He's never been able to experience the light lighting ceremony that we see that we mentioned in chapter eight. We'll mention again, maybe just frustration, missed it all. Goes into synagogue, never seen a scroll. I mean, just put yourself in this guy's uh, spot for a second. Or possibly, maybe he was overwhelmed with the feeling of honor and privilege, when he found out that this was the reason he was born blind, that God could use his life to glorify himself and to identify the Messiah. I hope that's his, <laughs> I hope that's how he took it. And oh, by the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this same truth is true of you as you sit there today. This is what your life is about. This is what God wants to do in your life. This is exactly what we see from the scripture. He's got a greater purpose in your life than to just give you what you think you want or deserve. He's got something much greater in mind for you. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. He wants to utilize you to bring him glory. And I'm telling you, if we just woke up with that mindset on a given day, instead of all jacked up and wrapped around the axle about what we got to do and how we got to feel and who this person's mistreated us and this person's mis- done this wrong to us, if we actually woke up with this mindset. What an honor and privilege it is today to wake up and breathe the air that he's given to me through the lungs that he's created in me to actually bring him glory with my sorry life. (laughs) And see, that's what's crazy that oftentimes that's how we think it's our sorry life. He views it much differently. You're valuable to him. You are extremely valuable to him. And just because you weren't born blind and just because you didn't live in the first century and just because it wasn't a dramatic way that you were able to identify Jesus Christ, you can do that today in and through your life. God is still working works in and through us to others to bring him glory. It's just an incredible statement. You know, I love this, this story, but what's really interesting about this story is even when this man is gonna be healed, you know who the first face he sees is? It's actually not Jesus because <laughs> Jesus is going to send him down to the pool of Siloam. He's going to see other faces on his way back. Uh, we're going to see that he argues with his neighbors. No, no, I'm the one. I'm, I'm he. Just quit talking about me. I'm here, you know, kind of deal. So he sees all sorts of other faces, but eventually he sees Jesus. Jesus tracks him down. But it reminds me of a story. You guys have probably heard of Fanny Crosby. 
Uh, she wrote, wrote more than 9,000 hymns. Some of them are the most popular. In fact, when, you, when, you, when we sing out of the hymn books, sometimes just look and see most, a lot of them are Fanny Crosby hymns. I mean, she's written prolifically. The Lord really used her. You know, she lost her, her eyesight very early on. In fact, it was, she didn't, she don't think she was born blind, but she lost it early enough that she didn't remember having sight. It was, it was that early in her life. And you know that a, a, a pastor one day told her, I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. And he was, you know, he was trying to give a compliment, but you know, kind of backhanded style, you know, it's like, uh, man, it's too bad you were blind. And I love her response. And I think she had thought about this before because she just came right out with this. She said, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind? She said, if I, if I could have asked God for one thing is that he would have made me exactly the way he made me. And this, is what, and this is what she says, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. And see, when you, when you have a divine perspective on these things, it really clears it up. It's not, woe is me, I was born blind, or woe is me, I, I have this, this ailment, or woe is me, I can't do this and I can't do that. It is, I am created for a purpose. Lord, here I am. I'm available to you. So just, a, just an incredible thing to think through what was going on in this man's mind. Notice, by the way, where the works of God would be revealed. They would be revealed in him, not to him, not for him, but rather in him. That means by his very life, through his very body, the works of God could be manifested. God could take a a, a, a man, a, a human being who's falling apart, who's decaying, who's in the process of dying and do something in and through him that will bring him glory and actually identify the Messiah. I would just say that this man is gonna become a walking, talking, visual aid of God's great, marvelous works. I love, uh, I think I robbed this phrase from somebody else, but I don't know who to give credit to. So we are, we are a trophy of God's grace. This man was a trophy of God's grace. He was a trophy that now walked the face of the earth, pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Everywhere this man went, when people saw him, weren't you the blind beggar? Weren't you look just like that guy that used to beg? I, I remember my family growing up coming to the temple. You look just like that guy you used to sit over here on this rock. Then you would move over here and you, is that you? And he would be able to say, yeah, that's me. And what would be the natural follow-up question? What happened? He's going to say, that's, I mean, that's all he had to say. That's what happened. Jesus is what happened. The Messiah is what happened. And guess what I found out later by reading uh, <laughs> the book of John? No, by talking to the apostle John, Jesus told the disciples that that was what my life's purpose was. Can you imagine what a, what a rich, just incredible truth. By the way, that trophies you as well. That trophies me as well, this is exactly what God wants to do in and through each one of our life is that you would be a, just a trophy of God's grace. That as people looked at you, they would see the Lord. This is really the goal. Now in verse four, Jesus, again, he's, he's discipling his disciples through this, right? And so what he says in verse four through five is, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is the day. The night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, this word must, uh, interesting word, it describes what's necessary. It describes something that's got to be done 
from a sense of duty. This wasn't, to Jesus Christ, the works that he was doing, the works that God had designed him to do were not optional if he felt like it that day. You know, I feel like many times that's how we view our Christian life. Well, it's, if I feel like it that day, then I'll, you know, and, and oftentimes, and I get it, we don't feel well sometimes. I, I'm not trying to be too critical. It's just that the mindset needs to shift. It's, it's we're available. It's it, it, the idea that this is important. If it's important to God, it, want, it needs to be important to me. And I just want to be available. This is what Jesus is saying. He's got a sense of duty. He's got to do these works. And the fact that he says, I work, he's exerting his energy to perform the works of or belonging to the sending one. And what this tells us is this. It's very, it's very key because there's an application to our life here, and, and I don't want to miss it, is that God the Father designed Jesus Christ to walk in specific good works. He designed it this way. Now, part of that we get from the Old Testament, right? Because it said the Messiah would do this, 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 this. In fact, we're going to look at a verse here in a second. So those are specific good works that God the Father designed Jesus Christ to walk in. And oh, by the way, this man at this time in history was one of those good works. This was on Jesus's calendar, his appointment book. And so many of these good works, as I mentioned, were prophesied in the Old Testament. Luke 7, 21, we've kind of looked at this before. This is his conversation of John the Baptist's disciples. And at that very hour, he cured many of, many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. So like we see this story in chapter nine, he did this all the time. He was giving blind people their sight. This is part of what was predicted about him. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have heard, uh, seen and heard. And then he, he lists all of these good works that he has been involved in, that he's doing, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This is just a sampling of the good works that Jesus was designed beforehand by God the Father to walk in, just a sampling, and obviously he executed all of these good works. And this should be a point of application. There should be a verse right now that's just burning in your thinking as you think about this concept, and it's Ephesians 2.10. Because Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, speaking of believers in Jesus Christ, those who are saved by grace, not by works, in Ephesians 2.8 and 9, but we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, not to be saved, but because we are saved, because we are part of the family of God, God has now designed us in such a way that he wants to accomplish good works in and through each one of us, which, by the way, God is randomly deciding as he goes which works you should walk in. That's not what it says at all. It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You look at the life of Jesus Christ and you say, yep, that was on his schedule. That was on God's timetable. Jesus was only doing what God had designed him to do. But what about me? I don't know what to do. Guess what? The same thing is true of you. As you sit there this morning, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you sit there. God has designed good works for you to walk in today. And then when you wake up tomorrow, he's, he's got good works designed for you to walk in tomorrow. And he wants to do that in and through you. He wants to work in and through you the same exact way that he worked through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's giving you the resources of Jesus Christ so that you can execute those good works in an acceptable way. So instead of us, and sometimes, I mean, Christians, it's like we, you know, we could put a, a you know, a hundred chickens in a room and cut off their head and, and they would all run around and it looks like a lot of stuff's going on. Blood squirting, legs are moving. I mean, it looks, looks like a lot of activities happening. 
And you know, sometimes we get very content with activity. And it's not about just running around in circles, just burning ourselves at both ends. It is literally learning how to live out the good works that God has designed for us, not creating good works, not chasing good works, but simply being available for good works. This is why the Christian life can be described as restful. Some of us have lived the Christian life, and, and when someone says the Christian life's restful, you're like, you're a liar. <laughs> it is tiring. It is stressful. It wears me out. If you think that way, it's because this concept hasn't quite been communicated uh, in a way that it makes sense to you. We are designed for good works. And, and I'll just tell you this. I don't want to do one more good work today than what I'm designed to do. But I don't want to do one less good work today than I'm designed to do. I'm not interested in doing more good works so that people will think well of me. I'm interested in walking in the good works that my Savior has designed for me, period, right? And so this is the mindset. Jesus is doing this. He must do these good works that his Father has designed for him. And then he says that he's got to do it while it's still day. And I believe it's just a metaphor where he's basically saying while he still can. There's going to be a day where his time on earth uh, is done, And specifically in this context, I think that Jesus is referring to Israel's chance to receive their Messiah and King. This is the daytime. Now, why do I say that? Well, I'm jumping ahead to the the phrase is coming, but just bear with me here and understand that I think specifically what he's saying is it's daytime. In other words, the nation still has an opportunity to respond to these good works. And this is why I'm going to keep doing them Uh, giving them an opportunity. Now, again, as we look at the whole life of Jesus, by this point in time, by the time we get to John 9, Matthew 12 has already happened. Matthew 12 is kind of the delineation marker of the official rejection of Jesus Christ. This is when they officially committed the the sin, um, the, the, um, I I can't think of the name, the um, unforgivable sin. Why couldn't I think of that? Matthew 12, they had committed the unforgivable sin. They had attributed his good works to demonic power. The nation had, had already officially rejected him, but the offer still stood and standed while he was still alive. I, I believe that's what Jesus is saying. Once this happened, once he died, once they put him to death, that kingdom offer was officially off the table and postponed for the future. And this is where we kind of bring in our eschatology at that point. But the point is this, he needed to do the works that he was prophesied to do, that God had designed him to do, to basically give Israel everything they needed to make an accurate decision about them. Unfortunately, many did not, right? John 1, John 1, many did not receive him, okay? So we've seen that bear out. And this is why he says nighttime is coming. And he says nighttime is coming when no one can work. And see, nighttime comes when there's a lack of presence of light. And what does he say about himself in verse five? He's the light of the world. So when the light of the world leaves, it's dark. It's nighttime here. Israel's not gonna be able to Uh, receive their Messiah until a day in the future when daytime comes again, so to speak. And that's going to come in his second coming, which we'll talk about here in a second. So it's a, it's a time period where it clearly says no one can work. Now that's, that's why it's an interesting phrase. And that's why I think this context is so specific to, to this particular point in terms of the reception, messianic works being received by the nation, because it can't be saying that good works are unable to be completed when Jesus is gone. This would defeat the whole purpose of the church age. Ephesians 2.10 would have no purpose. Titus 2.14, remember God wants church age believers to be zealous 
for good works. So it's not saying that when Jesus left, no good works could ever be performed. I think what he's saying is when Jesus left, specifically, that no messianic works designed to convince Israel of their Messiah's identity could be conformed because the Messiah is not here. This is what I believe he's saying. And this is why I think he goes on to say that last phrase, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So when he departs, the light goes out is, is basically what he's saying here. So biblically, the light of the world will shine brightest when? Well, when Israel receives them as their king. When he comes back in his second coming, Zechariah 12 says that they're going to see the one whom they've pierced and they're going to mourn and they're going to receive the Messiah at that point. All, of, all Israel will be saved at that point. Now, two-thirds of them will not have made it through the tribulation period. That's tragic. But the third that remains, they will receive their Messiah at that point. And that's when the light of the world again comes back in. When will it happen? During the future millennial kingdom reign of Christ. And this is going to usher in the eternal state. One of the things, and I don't want to pass by this too quickly. We mentioned this in John 8. You know, John 8, 12, that entire dialogue where it started ramping up with the religious leaders, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We remember that. We talked about that when we went through it. But he says it again here in verse five. And what's interesting about it is it ties into our context this morning. He's the light of the world. He's going to demonstrate that by giving light to eyes that have never seen before. It's going to be a demonstration of that claim. But remember, I am. And it was probably also a reference, if you recall, to the lamp lighting ceremony, kind of closing out the Feast of Tabernacles. We had talked about this before. It was one of the happiest occasions of the Jewish year. Every evening during the temple uh, or during the, the festival, a priest would light these three huge torches kind of in that area of the temple in the court of the women on the menorah. And it would just, it would be lit all night. And so the only light you would see in the entire city would be the light coming out of the temple. And it just represented God's glory, it represented God's presence with the Jewish people on earth. People would bring smaller torches. They would, they would light them off those lights. They would take it around. It was just this joyous celebration at night of light in the darkness. And so this is why, again, I believe Jesus contextually coming out of this whole, you know, because this is just the day before this happened. He's saying, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who brings light. With, without me, there's darkness. Now let's uh, look at the healing now. All right, verses six through seven. So when he had said these things, he's discipling his disciples. He spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, this is a unique healing, okay? Because in this healing miracle, Jesus is going to use elements that are already in existence. In fact, as you kind of think through it, he used his own saliva. And I know some are like, man, that's gross, you know, it's, he used his own saliva, he used the dirt, he uses the pool, and he actually uses the blind man. All of these elements assist him in this miracle. What's really fascinating about this, well by, well, by the way, before I go on, the pool of Siloam is the exact pool that the priest would go down to for the water pouring ceremony. This pool's had a lot of activity in the last seven days, and now he's going to send this man down to the same pool to wash himself. One of the interesting things about Jesus and his healing ministry is he did not always do things the same way. We're going to look at that here. Even in the area of blind people, he didn't do things the same way. Now, I don't want to be too hard or, or pick on people, but if, but if you were to go to a healing service by some of these so-called healers in our day, guess what you would find? You would find the same thing night in and night out. You would find the same order of songs 
you would find the same, the same beat where they start picking up the percussion to get you know, people jazzed up. You'd find the same beat where they start blowing the horns and the trumpets. And then you would find the same methodology where they slap and smack somebody on the head and knock them back, right? So it, the methodology, it, it, it's the formula. And if they were to teach somebody else to heal, they would teach them a formula. Guess how the master healer healed? No formula. He just did what he did based on the will of God in that moment. And I'm gonna, uh, we'll make an argument as to why Jesus did it differently here. Why, what, what could have been contextually the reason why he did this. But just look at this. Jesus has healed many blind people throughout his ministry. We're gonna look at this here. In fact, it seems to be a pretty ongoing occurrence. You start adding this up, you can't get the exact numbers because when he says he healed many blind, what is that? 10, 20, 30? I mean, I don't know. He healed many. And so we'll see this. But notice this. Look, look at all the different ways that he healed blind people as recorded in the Gospels. In, in Matthew 9 and Matthew 20, he just touched the eyes of two blind men. He just touched them. Boom, healed, right? Just touched them, they, they were healed. In all of these passages, he spoke a word and they were healed. Didn't have to touch them. Just said, see, or I don't know what he said, but he, his spoken word healed them. Other blind people at the temple, the blind beggar Bartimaeus, we know that story as he's crying out to Jesus walking along the roadside. And Jesus healed him with a spoken word. This is an interesting one. Mark 8, Jesus spit directly on a man's eyes. Just didn't spit in the the dirt this time. (laughs) Spit on the guy's eyes, put his hands on his eyes. And then guess what? This is that healing where the guy says, he kind of rubs, probably rubs the spit off. He's like, I see things moving and they look like trees. I, I don't know. And Jesus says, all right, close your eyes again, puts his hands on him and then he, and then he can see it. So it's like this two-part healing. It, again, it's unique, right? And, and here we've got clay made from his saliva, made from existing dirt. He takes that clay, rubs it on the man's eyes. He doesn't wipe him off. He tells him to go wipe it off down in the specific pool It's a multi-stepped healing process. Now, why would Jesus do that? Is there something in the context that would indicate, at least in this story, why he might have used a different method to heal? Well, I think personally, having studied it, it was designed by God to work this way. And I'll tell you why. It was to challenge the Pharisees' misinterpretation of the Sabbath. This was a Sabbath day. The eighth day following the Feast of Tabernacles was designated as a Sabbath. He is now doing something against what the Pharisees taught by, by spitting in the dirt. I mean, this is how ridiculous, well, I'll be careful, but this is how ridiculous the Pharisees are. He spit in the dirt. He mixed that with dirt and they said, oh, you're, you're needing, you're, you're needing something. You're mixing something. Can't do that on the Sabbath. You just broke the Sabbath by doing that. The man now going, walking down to uh, this pool and washing off was also considered forbidden the Sabbath. They could, they could say that. So now Jesus has just done a miracle. And guess what? He has broken their interpretation of the Sabbath himself. And he's caused this man to break their interpretation of the Sabbath. And this is why I think he used this methodology at this point. He's bringing them to a point of decision. This is an undeniable, deni- undeniable divine miracle, but I did it on the Sabbath. What are you going to do with that? And you know what the good answer is? Change my interpretation of the Sabbath. Not explain away a divine miracle. And that's the route they're going to take. 
And see, what, this is what I love about God. There's no formula. There's no formula. Jesus is literally walking by faith. If, if there are formulas to the Christian life, then you are not walking by faith. This is what I love about child rearing, right? You can get a great child rearing book. They can give you, and oftentimes they focus on formulas, okay? And then you get that one child, and the formula ain't going to work on that child, whatever that child is. I cannot speak for, my, for myself and my experience because I have five angelic children. <laughs> um, but I've heard that from other people, you know? Same thing with marriage books, right? Here's the formula. Here's the formula. Here's the formula. I thought one time, like I brought, you know, I brought my wife some chocolate one time. When I get home, she's going to say, what? I don't remember that. And it, but I did, I promise. I brought her chocolate one time and I thought, man, I'm doing a great job. That's what they told me to do in this marriage book until I found out that my wife was trying not to eat chocolate. So I actually was hurting her by trying to love her, right? I wasn't paying it close enough attention to know what her needs were. So sometimes we get formulaic in our approach. And I guess here's what we've got to say. Let me just take this away in terms of application. Just in church, just in church, methods change, the message never changes. The message cannot change. The message is the message. But methodology, I would say, does change, and methodology has to change. It has to change. Because no one in their right mind would go over to another country and say, okay, listen up, country. You guys all adjust to me and my traditions and my preferences and my heritage go. We would never do that. In fact, what do they train cross-cultural missionaries to do? They go over there, they learn the culture, they are making an attempt to adjust their thinking, not adjust the message, but adjust their methodology to better meet the needs of the culture, to reach them with the gospel. And guess what? Last time I looked, America is changing. It's getting swept right from under our feet. And so we can, we can gripe and sit around and we can all get together for coffee at McDonald's and gripe about how terrible the world is and how it should be and how it should have been this way. And should. I get it. I'm with you. Amen. I was, just, I was even just talking to someone this morning. It's like it, it, the good old days, right? I'm with you. I'm with you. I wish we were in the good old days. But you know what? Rather than spending my energy on that, how about adjusting our thinking on methodology to reach this world who no longer has a, world, a biblical worldview for the most part? How do we do that? Because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm interested about people believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, not getting them to sing the songs that I want them to do, sit in the chairs that I want them to sit in, or even come into this building with four walls. That is not the intent of, of this church. We're trying to take that message out. The message, the gospel's the power of God to salvation. Not three songs in a sermon. Not the order of service. Not all the ministries we've already done. It is people. Methods have got to change. And we just see this even in the healing here of Jesus. Methods weren't, it wasn't about the method. It was about the message. And the message was the Messiah is healing blind people. And he's doing it like 14 different ways. The Messiah is healing blind people. This man is the Messiah. That's the message. And so oftentimes we get so distracted. Now he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. Go and wash. They're both commands. Pool of Siloam, about 700 yards from the temple in a southeasterly direction. This is kind of it as you come down from the temple. But it, but it just puts it in perspective. 700 yards is seven football fields. This is how far this man had to walk with clay on his eyes. So obviously he probably needed help getting down there. Somebody helped him to get down there. And, and then guess what? It worked. The dude was healed. 
And everyone now is trying to make sense of it all. In fact, go to verse 8 and 9. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen he was blind, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said this is he, others said he is like him. He said, I am he. You've got these two groups, neighbors who've known his family all his life, probably knew his story. Many of them probably with his family when they brought the kid home and realized that he was born blind, couldn't see. And then those who had seen him begging. And so we've got this intense debate ensue. Some said, this is he, others like him. He said, I'm he. A lot of debate going on. You know, if you've ever seen a blind person who's, who's never seen, oftentimes you, you can tell just by looking at their eyes, there's, there's something, there's a spark missing there. There's, uh, there's a darkness, if you will, there. I remember even growing up in high school, there were two kids, they were twin brothers. And one kid uh, was born blind. The other, the other, his brother was everything, I mean, could see, he was an athlete, he was charismatic. I mean, he was uh, just the life of the party kind of thing. And even though they were twins, you know, sometimes you look at twins and you're like, help me out, which, which one are you, you know? But even with them, they looked exactly the same, but in the eyes, you could tell who you were talking to. You could tell who it was based on their eyes. There was something that there was brightness or light uh, in his eyes. And I look at this man and it's the same man. It's not like he, he was 5'8 and he grew to 6'4. And they're like, I don't know if this is the same guy. You know, or it's like he grew his hair out. He's got this big fat beard now or he shaved or he looked. No, there's something different in this guy's eyes. And they're like, is this the guy? I can't, <laughs> I can't tell. And they're, so they're going, they're going back and forth. What's interesting is that all of the uses of the word said here, some said, others said, he said, all of the uses of that word is in the imperfect tense, meaning they kept on saying they're, they're talking over each other. This is an intense debate. And I, and I can imagine that the loudest voice in the room was him. Like, trust me, I'm him. I grew up. I know who I am. This is what happened, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So at some point, they come to a consensus. Now, by the way, why is this such a big deal that they will identify him correctly? Cheat down now to verse 16 and then to verse 32. This is why it's a big deal. Okay, because if this is true, if this is the man that was healed, the one who was born blind, which we all know he was born blind, verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. See, an undeniable divine miracle. Jump down to verse 32. Since the world began, this is the blind man now speaking, to the Pharisees. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of the one who was born blind. So you see it's significant. If this is the guy, something big, something huge just happened. And so they're trying to verify. At some point, they come to a consensus. They say, yeah, you know, I think you're right. You are the guy. What's the follow-up question? How did this happen? <laughs> What happened? Did you drink a certain juice? Did you eat a certain berry? Did you get kicked by a donkey, right? I mean, like, how did this happen, right? Is kind of the idea. And he answered, a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. They came to a consensus, it says pretty quickly. Again, the set is in the imperfect tense. It really jumps out in the Greek. They kept on asking him how his eyes were open. They were probably, you know, like when you're so interested in getting an answer, sometimes you don't wait for the answer. You just keep on talking. It's like, if you'll be quiet, like I'll give you the answer. And so he gives the answer. And all he does is he recalls the facts. He just recounts the facts uh, of what had happened. He doesn't provide any commentary on how he felt 
about his healing. He doesn't provide any commentary on how he felt about Jesus. He didn't provide his commentary about how he felt on anything. The reason for that we're going to see later in the passage is if people got too friendly or excited about Jesus, the religious leaders didn't like it. They would actually excommunicate people from the synagogue. And so he was very, he was playing his cards close to his vest. I think everyone kind of knew that they needed to be a little bit tight-lipped regarding how they felt. But what's really cool is this guy, he's just going to grow a spine. He grew optic nerves from the healing. And throughout this conversation, he's going to start growing a spine because he is going to stand up to the Jewish religious leaders. When he starts recognizing their shenanigans, that they're just, you know, messing around and they're just not taking this serious, he is going to stand right up to them. And we'll see that. It's kind of fun uh, to look at as we go there. Guess what? The next question is, okay, well, you've said this guy, Jesus, healed him. Where is he? Let's now confirm that the Jesus you're talking about is the Jesus that's been causing all this commotion. And I love this answer. I don't know. Because guess what? He didn't know. Because he had walked off to the pool of Siloam. He had washed the clay off of his eyes. He saw for the first time, and guess who didn't walk him down to the pool? Jesus didn't walk him down to the pool. So now he knows Jesus has healed him. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like, and he literally can't identify him. And so in the next few weeks, we're just going to continue to to look at the responses to this miracle. This is really what chapter 9, the rest of chapter 9 is about. Different elements within the crowd. How are they responding to this undeniable divine miracle. And so we'll pick it up there. What's really cool is later, and you'll see in verse 35, Jesus goes and finds this guy. And that's, and that's a beautiful conversation. We'll consider that in the next couple of weeks. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for just including this incredible miracle in your word so that we can just kind of read through it, study it and rejoice, not only in your power, but also in your love, your interest in the average person. It's just amazing. Your, your heart toward the Father and his desires for your life. We just love to just, just kind of slow down and look at those things. Lord, it's our heart's desire that we would be available in our own lives, that we would have a divine perspective, realizing that our lives are, are much more than what we even think they're, they're about, that you've got a purpose, you've got a, a design for them. And Lord, may we just, each one of us in this room and each one listening, find and understand what that purpose is. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.